0: super excited for this episode. We have Christine Parrish. She's the uh, VP of Technology Solutions with Compact Membrane. And they're an exciting new startup, if you will. But uh, they're they're taking some focus, uh, some lab work, academia work, now stepping into pilots, have gone through funding and are ready to commercialize their technology. Uh, And their technology is focused on membranes, the name. um, But I think what we're most excited about is when we hear about membranes, CO2 is kind of the afterthought. Uh, and not with Christine and Compact Membrane. They're actually focused on decarbonizing industry through, through membranes, through being more efficient, less energy intensive. So Christine, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have our listeners learn more about what you are all doing and how it's gonna revolutionize the decarbonization of different industries that we don't always think about when we talk about membranes.
1: Awesome. Thanks. And we're really excited to talk about it too. I think this is one of the things that CMS has been focused on really for the last 30 years. And to finally be able to see the world be ready for carbon capture and decarbonization is really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years. It's only been seven years since the a inception of what I would call the facilitated transport platform that allows us to do the CO2 separation, but energy efficient separations are nothing new for membranes. And so we've been applying that to other applications in the pharmaceutical and specialty chemical industry for the last 30 years.
2: No, I, I, uh, you have, you have the, the coolest job title. That if I had any technical skills, capabilities, or mindset whatsoever, I would aspire to do. But the chief membraneologist, like that, is just the, the best title of a job ever. Uh, I will never hold that, but uh, you know, somebody has to, I guess. <laughs>
1: aspire to it too, but you know, uh, Sudip is, is very excellent with membranes and. You know, membranes have held such promise for years. I think they're kind of a holy grail that people have been talking about of, you know, if we could get them to work in industry, they would solve all of these these problems. And it's really nice to see their day in the sun coming.
2: That's great. Well, so it's a great place to start. So, you know, we we'll, we'll want to learn all about what you're, what you're doing and there at uh, that CMS, but, but uh, let's maybe kind of start at more of a higher level. Tell us about what you're ultimately trying to accomplish. So I know we talked about decarbonizing hard to abate industries, what does that mean? Where do you play in that? What's your mission? And then kind of getting a little bit more of the technology behind it.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the things that we have heard from customers often is that they want to decarbonize, but they don't want to turn off the assets that they have today, and they don't want to have to do complicated retrofits or something that causes them to really move into a, a new way of operating their plants. And one of the things you know we heard is you know we don't want a chemical solution, we don't want a liquid solution. And we you know when we're thinking about this, you know we make membranes and think of them like the HVAC filter cartridges that most people have in their house uh, in their air conditioning systems. And that really enables the customers to do decarbonization with a bolt-on solution at the back of their plant that they can really use to do some powerful decarbonization and and stop that CO2 from ever going into the atmosphere.
2: So yeah, who who are who are the they? Are we talking about power plants? Are we talking about industry? Like who who's uh, who's the biggest users of something and like that? And I
1: this? think power plants are you know, they're looking for it too, but there are some incumbent technologies like amines that work really well for the natural gas power plants. I think what we're hearing from some of our customers in the steel, in the cement, in the oil and gas industry is that they're not being served. They don't have very large they have some large centralized streams, but in a lot of plants, you know, you might walk around, you might have seven different sources that are all a mile away from each other and piping those together would never be economically efficient. And so what they need is a modular solution that can sit next to the CO2 source and capture all of that CO2 and sit in environments that don't require very complicated engineering, right? The membrane can't require seven pre-treatment steps and five post-treatment steps after because that becomes a very complex system to both maintain uh, and operate.
0: Well, with the retrofit, I mean, you're talking about all these steps, everything takes up footprint. When I think of you know a, just a cartridge sliding it in, I just changed mine out the other day. I, I mean, we're not talking about a lot of real estate. Uh, that is so contrary to what we've seen. What is the footprint like? I mean, when when you're talking bolt on, are we just feeding you know flue gas through this membrane? What comes out the other side, um, and how does how is it differentiated from the multi process? Um, you know, space constraining installs that we have seen in these industries that don't feel served.
1: Yeah. So what you're looking at is think about 40 foot shipping containers full of membranes, and then you get an air rich stream out one side, that air rich stream will have most of the Sox and Nox particulates removed. Um, they'll actually go with the CO2 stream. And so what makes that different is then that, that stream that has been. Treated by or rejected by the membranes can then, you know, be released. Um, And then your secondary stream or or what we consider the product is your CO2. And the flexibility of membranes allows you to do two things. The first is get that CO2 with as little energy as possible. And then the second is have varying CO2 purities. If I am selling CO2 to someone who's doing food and beverage, right, they want 99.5 or 99.8 and they want it to be pure CO2. If you are sitting next to a place where you could do mineralization or another carbon to value application, you don't wanna pay for 99.5 CO2. And so membranes give you the flexibility to get to 60% CO2, use it, turn it into a valuable product like CO or uh, methane or ammonia, and use that CO2 then in to make products instead of trying to say, okay, you know, we could. We could pull more co2 out of the ground to make these products or we could use the co2 that's already floating around to do it uh, and do some co2 avoidance
2: yeah that's so you know i've got a quick comment on all what you're saying but then 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 a question on that um so you know i I, it always concerns me or bothers me that we all we always talk about the transportation sector like that's like the worst co2 emitter there is and it just isn't right like it is you know it's i think transportation amounts to something like 17 percent of total emissions but that's what we spend ninety percent of our time talking about, and it's what you, you know, We're turning the hard-to-abate, the the markets that you're serving don't really have good solutions for CO two capture. But if we had it, they'd have a way bigger impact than electric cars and everything else that we're doing and all these other things. Those are important, don't get me wrong, 17% is a big number. But I actually was uh, uh, hearing something just the other day about food waste alone makes up more than that. You know, so the overabundance of production of food and trash, and you know, we talked about landfills, and so you know, those feed right into what you're doing as well. So, but in that, that also brings that question, what do you do with the CO two? So, you yeah, know, I've got I've got to put you on the spot a little bit outside of the realm of where you're at, but you're you're helping the people collect that CO two, capture that CO two. What are they doing? Are we obviously are we not just going into pipelines, We're not just sequestering you're talking about alternative uses for it. So are you are you partaking in any of those
1: downstream efforts as well? Yeah, so we don't do the downstream methods ourselves, but we are certainly collaborating with partners to do. And I think one of the things that's important to think about membranes is that they're enablers for a lot of other technologies. So they're enabling sequestration in places where that's geographically possible, right? There are some areas of the world where they don't have good carbon sinks. And so utilization is going to be their, other, their only option. And when you're looking at utilization, that typically looks like something that they don't wanna pay very high uh, energy penalties or cost penalties in a capital sense for putting in more equipment than they need. Um, So I'll just maybe give some well-known examples from the industry, you know, Semvita is doing a lot to take CO2 and, you know, turn it into a multitude of different products, including methanol, um, you know, remora, um, free carbon, all of these people are looking at using CO2 to make something valuable. And I think that's really, really important.
0: I think that was Remora, given the honk in the oh, background yeah, that's just there. That's, that's <laughs> a, yeah, that's great.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. We we, we love the Remora team. they uh, they've been, been great partners of ours as well. And uh, actually, Paul is on the uh, Paul Gross on the uh, the podcast. Uh, early days, uh, so early go day back day and day. watch it. Yeah.
0: Seven or something, episode seven. So, episodes, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Great.
2: They're Doing great things, but yeah, that's we're huge advocates of uh, you know utilization, and you know you, you can't just capture it and put it in the ground. Yes, I mean there is a, a whole volume that has to do that, but how do we find new sources for it and yeah so but you know but the the, the before that though we have to have cost effective you know efficient ways of capturing it that don't require huge large footprints because that just you know defeats half the purpose so very interesting. So, so maybe yeah, go, go through that. Walk us through. You, uh, yeah, you kind of were given a great example about uh, the Amazon jungle and uh, things like that. How does your product work? Yeah, I love the fifth grade level of education for us, for for me anyway. Uh, but uh, I suck I in. Work. I okay. suck in that. I'll, I'll no, throw. I'll six, throw myself. Six or in there. Seven grade at least. I'm, like, I'm on board the pitch. So. So, yeah. How, how does your
1: product work? What do you do? Yeah, we make facilitated transport membranes, and if you think about how facilitated transport membrane works. Um, it's easy to picture the jungle, right? And if I had uh, no access to a car and I was trying to get through the jungle that's full of bush and I'm just a person uh, and I have a machete, I have to hack my way through that bush and it's gonna take a lot of time and a lot of effort and it's not going to be easy. If Tarzan is trying to move through that same jungle, he is gonna grab onto all those vines and move much more quickly, much more easily. And if you think about the number of Tarzans versus the number of me that could move through the bush, uh, Tarzan is going to go much faster and there's going to be a lots more of him. And that's exactly how facilitated transport membranes work. There's chemical uh, end groups on our polymers that you can think of as the vines, and Tarzan just moves through them. In this case, Tarzan is the CO2. So it moves through. They're not used up. They don't need to be regenerated. They're just vines. So they're just hanging on there. The Tarzan uses them and then they're going right back to the same amount of utilization that they had before. That CO two molecule was touching them. Nitrogen is the person that would have to hack their way through the bush and the bush that is always, you know, growing right back up as soon as one of them hacks their way through. And so that's what makes it really low energy. Is that CO two goes through very easily. You can imagine, you know, I'd have a, you know, hundred Tarzans moving at the speed of one person and it just makes a really efficient, easy separation.
0: Since you're not having to regenerate, um, no wear down of the membranes, are we talking long life expectancy, low operational um, you know, rigor, having to have somebody out there making changes, downtime, what does that look like?
1: Exactly, so it looks like you would replace all of the membranes about every six to eight years. So an eight year lifetime of the membrane, that's not terrible. If you think of plants, typically steel is 25 years for most compressors. So that's three times during the lifetime of the plant that you would have to replace the membranes. The schedule may be different depending on how you're operating. You know, oil and gas plants tend to have a two-year turnaround, and in that turnaround, you could replace a portion of the membranes instead of all of them. But it does make the maintenance a lot easier and very predictable too.
2: Now, so you know, I I know, like in say a a pressure-sting absorption type of system uh, or other membrane systems, a lot of time it's your your letting the nitrogen go through and or, or other gases it sounds like yours is letting the co2 that's your core core focus is that a the, the, your product differentiator and b does it make it much more effective because you're focusing on the one that we're trying to extract as opposed to eliminating everything else that whole jungle is that is that kind of am i saying that correctly yes
1: yeah, precisely and the other th- thing that we have specifically thought about with our membranes is that we also want this. We want the CO2 to go through, but we also want the SOx, the NOx, what we would consider the contaminants in the stream, to go with the CO2 so that they can be thermally processed later. You know, we can't release SOx and NOx to the atmosphere, and to remove them, typically you use a thermal process. Thermally heating a very large stream with low concentrations of SOx and NOx, not very energy efficient putting it into a stream that is, you know, a 10th or a hundredth of that volume makes it much more efficient uh, and allows us to use better methods of removing those.
2: So it's a total offshoot of that then. So really you're stripping a lot of the air and the nitrogen out. That sounds like a pretty pure, clean thing. Are you just venting that? Or are you doing anything you've already, you've already kind of purified to nitrogen. Are we compressing that and liquefying that and using the nitrogen or is it not enough volume? Does it not worth it?
1: It will depend on the application. So, you know, one of the applications that we're looking at is steel, in which there may be a lot of carbon monoxide in that stream with the nitrogen. So, in that case, you would have to separate the CO and the nitrogen. In other applications where it's very clean and there's not a lot of oxygen, you know, that will be a very pure nitrogen stream and you, you could use it for other applications or you could vent it safely. Uh, it's all about, you know, where you are and, and how much does that utilization make sense for you.
0: So, I mean, the technology is clearly very thought through. Why just now are we coming to market? Is it is that kind of the changes in legislation and the focus on decarbonization? Or we just haven't had the technology, maybe the focus in academia on these types of technologies? Why today?
1: Yeah, I think the academia focus has been there for a while. If I'm going to be honest, you know, six years ago when this facilitated transport membrane project was really getting off the ground at CMS when we would call people about carbon capture. They didn't, they thought that was a fantasy, you know, something that was never going to happen. No one was going to care about it. Green hydrogen and green energy were going to be here in 2025. And this was just not going to be a non issue. Today, you know, it, that just isn't the case. And I think when the IRA bill passed, you know, our phone was ringing off the hook. You know, we talked to you about this two years ago. Can we get in the front line of the queue? I need a pilot ASAP. We need to figure out how to decarbonize decarbonize these set of assets immediately. How can we work with you guys? I think that was a huge turning point for us and something that we were really excited about.
2: Yeah, no, that'd be interesting. So, where where are you in that life cycle? Do you do you have you commercialized yet? You got some pilot projects?
1: Yeah. So we are in what I would call a technology readiness level five, and we have four pilot projects three of which are going in between December of 2023 and February of 24 and we can talk about those partners they kindly let us uh we can we can name drop a little bit um, so we have a steel pilot with uh, Volsalpine a materials pilot with RHI magnesita and an oil and gas with OMV so we're very excited about those demonstrations and then working with brass Chem, who has partnered with us on other separation applications before uh, we are doing a one to four ton per day pilot that should go in um, either the end of 24 or beginning of 25 depending on compressor timelines
0: so with the pilots and you know i'm thinking literally pre-orders i mean how long do you want these pilots to run before you have a level of comfort where you say you know, we are going to scale this up now to do a hundred tons per day. We're going to go secure the funding we need. Uh, What is that sweet spot of this is working. We feel confident. We've made our tweaks and we're ready to give, give those calls back to the people of two years ago and say, let's go. And then from there, what is that timeline for them from, Hey, we're placing POs to we're decarbonizing our assets.
1: Yeah, so I think typically we like to see about three months of data. What you'll see with a facilitated transport membrane is if it, there is some contaminant in the stream that's going to kill the membrane, you'll see a very sharp drop off. And within about a month, you'll, it'll just go to nothing. We haven't seen that in the lab. We've tested the lab at much more um, stringent conditions and we expect to see in the field. And so once you've got three months of that really nice decay curve data, I think we're ready to start calling other people and say, okay, let's talk about, um, we would call 100 tons per day, probably a demonstration project. And that's what we would do. As with everybody else in the world, supply chain is really dictating timelines at the moment, but typically from the start of the engineering process to build and delivery would be two, two and a half years, depending on the size of the project.
2: Yeah, we need to dig into compressors and understand why there's such a supply chain issue when everybody's been trying to get to them so if there's anybody that has a compressor factory you know I don't know ramp it up because that's a, you know, all of these projects I mean we run into it ourselves like it's like that is the the, the 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 barrier to entry to a lot of things or at least the slowdown to a lot of these projects and it's it's crazy exactly. I'm not sure why it's not new technology that's what that really throws me so
1: yeah, and I think the unlock there, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about, is that a lot of these application, unlike traditional oil and gas, do not require an API compressor, um, which does make it a little bit easier, a little bit more cost effective to get your hands on it. What I think is really important and you know what CMS and other carbon capture systems are focused on is productization, right? If we are stick building all of these like they do for the oil and gas industry, it will take us forever and it'll slow it down. If you can design one, build a hundred, that makes a whole lot more sense Uh, and it's easier for the customers, right? You can go off the shelf and you can pick size A, B or C depending on your application. And that's actually really a sweet spot of the membranes. If you think about an amine tower, I personally, I don't think that amines will ever be beaten at the really large scale. If you have 3 million tons of CO2 or more amines are always going to be the most effective solution for that. There's really no getting around it.
2: Well, that's the most flexible too, right? Like, you know, know, your gas stream doesn't have to be so consistent and and things like that.
1: Exactly. Um, So, but if you have a stream that is less, you know, consistent, is smaller than being able to say, you know, I have 10,000 as scuff, I have 50,000 scuff. And, you know, if I have 30,000, I'll just take three of the 10,000 done. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to re-engineer. It makes life much easier.
0: Are you able to design off the shelf is great. Like, can you say this is, you know, what we expect peak flow to be, or in five years, we anticipate that we're gonna tie in another stack, but we wanna run today at 50, 30% of what we believe max volume to be. Do, do the membranes care? Does it, do you see a drop off in efficiency? What does that look like?
1: No, so you really don't see a drop-off in efficiency, which is great. What we'll do, and, and membranes really give you the flexibility. So it's not a once-pass-through system. There's two banks of membranes, really, and there's a recycle loop for that. So if you wanted to run at 50% the capacity, we could do two things. You could only put in half the amount of membranes that you need, and then in five years, when you're ready to do, just install more uh, membrane units, but the balance of plant or the the compressor would all be there. Uh, or you could just... Drop the recycle rate from the second stage to the first stage and kind of run the system more slowly. So membranes provide you with the same design, a whole lot more flexibility that you, than you would see in some of the other um, applications, and you know, solid sorbents, liquid sorbents, where they need to ha- have that thermal treatment in between to to release the CO two.
0: Well, and we run into that where we talk with people, and it's, oh, if only we could have CO two at a higher purity well, the retrofit is so difficult. I mean, we hear it all the time. If we would have known five years ago when we put these membranes in, we could have done something differently, but now it's you know we're trying to kind of put it back in after the fact, big challenge. Uh, So that's awesome that you have the flexibility on the membrane. I would imagine with the compressor, you do need to do some forward planning and maybe have a VFD so that it can run at half capacity and turn up, or maybe you uh, put two in line, but then you run into the lead times. And it just, it looks like you do have a path forward to start to work around some of these long lead times and start servicing industry pretty rapidly um, with the custom but standard solution.
1: Exactly, and I think what makes the CMS Membranes, because we've got that facilitated transport, we're talking about low pressure applications. So under four bar and sometimes even two and a half bar. So you could use a blower instead of a compressor and that makes life a whole lot easier. And I think that's something that we heard from our customers that they were Absolutely, looking for they want to put this in non-classified areas. They want as simple applications as possible, and so we heard that. Um, and from an engineering design, we're we're listening and incorporating that into the full product.
2: Well, I think that's critical for the long term. Again, i you know again, I, I believe in the IRA. I mean, it's a great bill and it's, it's you know it's serving its purpose, but it needs to just be a bridge, and you know it needs to be a bridge to to, to give us enough runway. To constantly, you know, advance the technology to be cost effective. If it costs eighty-five dollars a ton to capture the CO2 and then dispose of it, that's not cost effective long term. So what you're saying, yeah, can you get rid of the compressors, which is probably one of the most expensive components of the, of the system? Uh, you know, get rid of that, get to a blower, get modular, get lower costs. Yeah, that's that that's great because that that's what's needed, and that's what you know, that's that's what a, a subsidy should do. It should subsidize for a time. To help advance some of these technologies, is uh, is one of your biggest obstacles as as you get past this first round of, of pilots, and even with these pilots, it's what do I do with the CO2 now? You know, we don't have pipelines as it stands today. What year are we in? Twenty twenty three. Uh, we're not we're not going to have a pipeline or very few small pipelines uh, in the in the near future. Uh, it looks like we're heading more in the direction of uh, you know the, uh, of regional localized. Yeah, um, you know, basically direct inject hubs of, of, of individuals that have access to them. Uh, there's uh, two or three states now that are kind of taking that that, uh, that that responsibility from the EPA and and qualifying their own tier six wells and not requiring the EPA to wait six years to do. Um, but those still take time as well. Those are very centrally focused. Just because you have a steel mill doesn't mean underneath that steel mill you have a tier six well. So that was a long way around to say, what are we doing with the CO2, even in the pilot projects that you have, and is that a big obstacle for you going forward?
1: I think, um, and it'll, it'll depend. So I would say there's two different types of customers. There are customers who sit in places where there is already a CO2 network developed, be it because its EOR already exists there, or somebody filed for a class well permit 10 years ago, and they are just very, very lucky. Um, I, but even in those situations, what gives me hope Um, as an engineer is watching all of these companies that typically wouldn't collaborate, change their mode of operation to say, listen, we all need to get all the emitters in this area need to talk about how do we get into this one pipeline to put it in so that we meet um, not only economies of scale, but so that we protect our communities. And I think it's really great. The decarbonization leaders network, I think is the first person who said that is that we are moving away from you know, what's mine is mine and into collaboration for CO2 for the betterment of society, which I'm really excited about. I think the other class of customers is people who already have an idea of what they're doing with the CO2. So maybe they have their own utilization. Um, Maybe they can use it in their own process. You know, cement is a really good example of that, where they can use CO2 as a hardening agent. Uh, And I think those are the people who are moving first. They need to show kind of the guiding light for the rest of Industry to say, you know, look here, there, here are the utilization options. If sequestration is not near you, if you are near se- sequestration, here's what that looks like, and here's how many people you have to have playing together to make that work. Yeah,
2: that's uh, you know, in, in my crystal ball, that's where I see the the market going. From a you know, we have these direct air capture hubs. Great, you know, we've got two billion dollars being invested in Louisiana. We work with a lot of these guys, uh, so I'm not, a, you know, I'm not opposed to direct air capture. There is certainly, a, you know, I mean, there's so much CO2 you know, to emissions that you have to do something with some of these large volumes. But to your point, we've got to come up with utilizations. But having said that, these pipelines, they're they're long in the tooth. They're not coming online if if at all or ever. But When you have a hub, it can't just be about the direct air capture. And I I wish we didn't name it a DAC hub because of that. It should just be, it's a hub and spoke for regional players to transmit their CO2 to them that you're capturing, as well as then build the infrastructure of companies around there that can utilize it, whether it's sustainable aviation fuel, carbon black, polymers, whatever else there is, build an infrastructure around it. Don't just focus on the direct air capture because that in the million years, right, a thousand years will never be cost effective relative to identifying alternative uses for it but it certainly is a needed thing let's put our money into that from a federal subsidy and then then build from there i don't know if anybody's really doing that yet and so i'm glad to hear that there's as you say a consortium of of people let's not rely on on federal government to to tell us how to do that industry's got to solve that problem
0: and and then look at the radius around the dac hubs all, all the major players you're talking about i mean we can we can go greenfield um, some of the uses of co2 but the emitters are are in those spaces i mean they're in very industrial uh, industrial driven um oil yeah, 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 and gas yeah. you and, and that's
2: some, why they're in such a great place yeah. because they have they have the geological structure underneath but at the same time they also have a lot of the huge emitters too but that's just one section of the country how do you do this in you know west virginia or or you know where maryland or something and yeah i mean that i think you have to you start with the, 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 the well, and then you build an infrastructure around it of potential emitters. It should drive the economy,
0: ultimately. You've said it so many times in the podcast, but the DAC kind of souring for you know, a compact membrane, where you're working on the same end goal. In fact, you'll probably, not even probably, you'll be removing more CO2 uh, that is emitted with your application. But we're focused on DAC. We write the articles about DAC. Everybody sees the funding for DAC has have you pursued any of that funding have you received any grants are you getting a piece of that pie have you tried to and people are just so focused on direct air capture uh, oh is there opportunity because uh, it really feels like a good marriage there yeah, to center locate everything
1: yeah so I think in my view anyway Dak is a very pessimistic outlook, right? If we're assuming that DAC is our only hope and that's the thing that we have to fund because that's the only thing that happened, it's like putting a bandaid on a bullet hole, right? Versus you have this carbon capture where you can stop it from ever getting into the atmosphere and do a more cost-effective solution. Um, But I think by doing carbon capture, we will learn lots of things, how to move these big volumes of air that will enable DAC to come down the price. So I think instead of putting them in opposition It would be great to see the funding agencies look at them as complementary and roads to each other so that they could bridge that together. But I think in terms of funding, actually, we have had more success piggybacking on the hydrogen hubs because, you know, a lot of the ways that hydrogen are made now, gray hydrogen, uh, blue hydrogen is SMR, and that that needs post-combustion capture, too. And so we've, you know, the mid-Atlantic hydrogen hub that was just... Granted to Delaware, you know, we were part of that application. We've got been successful there. And I think the DOE is trying, and I'm actually very encouraged to see them looking at okay, how do we bridge the valley of death between the first pilot and the first commercial unit, right? Industry is not going to sweep it swoop in after one ton per day pilot. They want to see something 20, 100 tons per day. And then that's when the risk has done, come down enough for them to pull out their capital projects spreadsheet and put. A carbon capture project in for their you know half a million a million ton tons a year application, and so I'm excited to see you know the Office of Carbon Management um, and the OECD come together to start looking at those demonstration fundings a little bit more. I think we're applying for a number of them that are in the beginning of 2024, and hopeful to see that you know go forward because I'd say. Previously, you know, oil and gas doesn't really want to play with the government. They, they worry about it, but now they're like, Hey, I need to decarbonize, decarbonize. I'm willing to work with other people. I'm willing to work with the government. This funding is really important to getting these projects through that valley of death and getting commercial units, in, you know, on the ground. No,
2: absolutely. And you talk about that middle-aged hub for the hydrogen, I think two of the eight hydrogen hubs are de- designated to be SMR or other have carbon capture technology, but then on the flip side they're passing laws or writing the legislation today to be excessively stringent on hydrogen. It has to be, it has to be green. It has to all be new construction. It has to be, uh, it, uh, it has to come only from renewables and all of these other things. And it's going to kill it. It's going to actually kill it. I mean, and that's where we, we have to have industry and not government driving these. And you know, that, that is about, like I'm not, I'm not an anti-DAC guy. It's just, I'm afraid that we said, oh, we got tech hubs, great, we're going to solve all the problems, throw a bunch of money at it, and you know, not to say we're going to greenwash it, but I think we're going to greenwash it because it makes us all feel good that we're doing something, and we're missing the boat on really advancing this technology, just like we're doing in hydrogen. We could miss the boat by getting too much regulation and not let industry do what they need to do. We appreciate the 12 years of funding uh, from federal tax dollars to help this happen, but put it in the hands of people that know what to do with it, like you said, and, and that's, uh, that's great. So how do we do that? How do we do more of that? Uh, how do we get a bigger consortium of this?
1: I think that's a good question. I think they're starting to form, right? People are actually willing to talk about what they're doing, which is a very different mode of operation than 10 years ago. I think one of the things, and you know, this is my personal view, the, the government shouldn't be picking winners through legislation. They should be inspiring ingenuity through uh, innovation. And I think they've started really to do that. Um, and the IRA bill was a, a good first step, right because that included carbon capture and DAC and that is really really exciting and, and making sure that happens. I think the next you know horizon and we've talked about it a bunch on this this episode is utilization. so let's let's not punish utilization over sequestration. Um, I think that is the next conversation that's going to happen and should you know really should be happening, right because, if I'm pulling a bunch of you know carbon out of the ground to make this versus taking carbon from the back of a steel plant in which, let's be honest, we're not gonna turn off steel. There is no alternative to these high grades of steel. That's not going away. Um, and so in some cases, we will always have to have some steel, some cement. And so how do we take that CO2 byproduct and make something really useful out of it? I think that's where the government can step in and, and they have, um, I think really with what we're seeing in the next two, uh, two to six months in, in FOAs has been really encouraged. Yeah, I think that's
2: that's the grand point there, right? That might be the best closing point of all of it is, again, I go back to the early statement that we said, we focus on the transportation sector and we say fossil fuels are horrible and you could go stop today on fossil fuels, which we're not going to. I mean, we could stop today on fossil fuels, what does that really truly solve? You know, you still need steel. We have to make steel. We're still, still going to have food waste. So that dude, that produces more methane content than than all the cars put together. You know, so uh, we, we still have buildings that are emitting. You know, we still have streets and everything else that we have. So you know, we're only talking about 15, 17 percent of the emissions when we talk about the fossil fuel aspect of it. So just capturing it out of the air isn't solving the problem of how do you do the hard to abate industries and that's what you focus on. So that's outstanding. I mean, we I think we're hundred percent aligned on, on everything you just said. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we want to, I mean, that's, we, 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 started this podcast just to really kind of talk more about this and educate really on the use of CO2. And it's really transformed into that conversation. Our focus is utilization. How do we help drive both that conversation, but in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all about investment, invest in that, you know, the parity law. For utilization for under under the IRA is 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 about you know you, I think it's eighty five dollars a ton for sequestration, but only sixty dollars a ton if you capture it and use it again. And they don't even like that because they say, well, you're still gonna still gonna emit back out there. I'm like, but if you do hey, it's cleaner once you clean it and put it back out there, so you don't have that socks and that knocks going into the atmosphere. But at least we're doing something with it. You can't if we're just gonna keep capturing it and sequestering. It, well, it's never going away. We're just, it's it's it's. Never ending, so it's in perpetuity that we're never going to get any farther. So it's great what you guys are doing. It's great to have you a, a lower cost, more efficient, more efficient, more cost effective solution. So,
0: yeah, pull down the barriers to entry. That's so good. Absolutely. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Actually, yeah. I can okay. feel the passion boiling over from him, which is which is it's 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 hard to do. I mean, he's he's just Mr. Methodical. We come in, we do an episode. Not today. He's fired up. He thought it was Friday. It's Thursday. You're but saying I generally just mail it in. Dude, you like you Let's lock it. it he Let's locks it. in he's, like, he's good behind the camera
1: i know it's important i think the energy and enthusiasm is one of the biggest things we're trying to cultivate on our team and we're seeing and excited to see in other people right is that if we don't get excited about this and there aren't people who are like mission driven for having decarbonization become a reality this won't happen because it's really easy to sit back and say someone else will say. Our,
2: our uh, simple tagline is you have to be in the black if you want to be in the green. And so you have to have a profitable solution to these projects or products or, or you know, issues if we're ever going to get there and commercialize it. And, and so, yeah, we have to collaborate on that. Industry has to be involved and there has to be a cost-effective way and then uses for it. I mean, there's there's no money to be made in sticking it in the ground other than the people that are being paid to do it which ultimately is a life cycle of our taxes going there. So we're all paying to capture it, put it in the ground. Again, it has to happen today, but what do we do about it? So
0: yeah, keep, keep on mission. I mean, it's so great. And, and talking about getting word out, where can we find you? How can we support, how can our audience support what's next for y'all? Tell us what you are needing.
1: Yeah, I think, well, first of all, if, I'll put a shout out too if you're a compressor company.
2: <laughs> I, I think that's where we put the We need the money. Uh, we need investment. Yeah, we're going to do a series B of uh, mm-hmm. going to get into you know, a compressor company. The, the age-old technology that's older than the steel mill itself. But, uh, no.
1: If you're PE and you're listening and you want to put those two yeah, things together. Yeah,
0: yeah. I it. think we're going to do it. A, and I like it. I like it a lot.
1: Um, but honestly, if, you have, if you're from the hard-to-abate sector and you want to talk about a more energy-efficient application for your carbon capture or you're a utilization player that is starting to think outside the lab and you're like, okay, what if I don't need 99.5% CO2 if I knock it back to 70%? I think we'd love to have those conversations and and get testing so that we can prove this full value chain out.
2: Outstanding. Yeah,
0: Thank you for joining us. Such an awesome episode.
1: Yeah, Uh, thanks for having me. Put it up
0: on on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. So thank you so much, Christine.